This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. We are in Matthew chapter 1, if you have got your Bible today, because Christmas really is coming. And Matthew starts the Christmas story like this. Not in chapter 2 of Matthew, but in chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. And then he goes on and lists a great long list of names. And most of the time... Most of us often have this temptation at least, whether we do it or not, a temptation at least, to skip the lists of names. Or at the very best, you kind of read them along and think, am I pronouncing this right? Or is this guy pronouncing these names right? But Matthew starts here. He starts with the the Christmas story. He starts with the family tree of Jesus. That's what a, a genealogy is. It just means an origin account. It's a kind of way of showing who someone is. And Christmas is the moment where God himself steps into the story. What we call the incarnation, the eternal son of God who puts on flesh and blood. John says he, he, the, the word became flesh. I love the way that the message version just says the, the word puts on flesh and moves into the neighborhood. The invisible has become visible. But this actually is more than just kind of doctrine. This is boldly, this stuff here in, in Matthew 1 is boldly historical. One of the reasons why Matthew starts with this list of names is that he's anchoring this event of the birth of Jesus. He's anchoring it in history. He's writing to a Jewish audience and he says, hey guys, you know you're waiting for a Messiah. You're waiting for a king. You're waiting for one who will deliver you. This is he. He is here. Everything that was promised to Abraham, that through your seed, that all families of the world, all families of the earth will be blessed, he's the one. Everything that is promised to David, that there will be a, a king on the throne for all eternity from the line of David, here he is. It's all history. It's all true. It's all Jesus. And the reason that that matters, the reason why it's not okay to kind of say, well, these are just stories. It, kind of doesn't really matter if this is true or not. The the meaning behind the stories, that's what's more important. That's what Christmas is really about, kind of love one another, serve one another, be kind to one another, peace to all men, goodwill to all men, all that kind of stuff. What matters most is not necessarily whether it's true or not. What matters most is the, the pattern of the meaning behind the teaching. The reason why that's not okay to say that is because that's not the gospel, And when you say that and go, well, it's really just the the kind of stuff behind it, the meaning, the truth behind it, that what that does is that actually just makes it about us and what we do. When actually the whole of Christianity from beginning to end is not about primarily about us and what we do. It's about God and what he has done for us. When the eternal son of God stepped out of heaven, humbled himself to the point of becoming a man took on flesh and blood, and then lived and died in our place. You see, the Christmas story is a gospel story. And Matthew starts with a list of names, 
and says you cannot understand the Christmas story unless you look at the family tree of Jesus. And it reveals, yeah, that this is historical, but actually something far more in one sense significant for us is that it shows what kind of God this is who steps into our story that we might be included that people like you and I might be included in the story of God. You see, the gospel is not Jesus Christ comes to earth, tells us how to live, we then live a good life, and then God, if we live a good enough life, God owes us a blessing. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the life that we should have lived, and died the death that we should have died, so that if we believe in him, we might have life in his deepest and fullest sense of the word, both now and for all eternity. And this gospel of Jesus is a gospel of grace. It's not about your performance. It's not about what you do or don't do or should do or shouldn't do or could do or couldn't do. It's all about what he has done from beginning to end. And so every single name in this list, every story, is not a story of this is how you should behave or this is how you shouldn't behave. It's a story of grace of who God is, of how he works, of who he chooses, of how he pursues rebellious, sinful, broken, messed up people and makes them his own. What kind of people he chooses and how ultimately he has made a way for you and for me. Pastor and, and author, a guy called Sam Albury says that of, of the genealogy of Jesus, he says the family Jesus came from is a picture of the family he came for. And it's pretty messed up in places. Even those people who we so often look at and think of as heroes, mm, not so much. Let's take a look. Verse 2, Abraham. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now Abraham, he's a hero, right? He was mentioned quite a lot in the Bible, more than 300 times. He's mentioned in 11 separate New Testament books. What a great guy. Hero of the faith. And in many ways he was, and yet he was also a moon god worshipper, right? Who had a little bit of a lying problem. He was a sinful man who needed a savior. He actually, if you know the story of Abraham, he actually twice tried to give away his own wife to avoid conflict with others. Now I'm kind of guessing wives in the room, that's probably twice too many, right? Hey, I, I mean, I'm sure after the first one, they must have had a conversation you know, honey, I'm really sorry about that, but they, they were really badly going to hurt me. And so I kind of had to, I had to offer them something. And the something that I thought was best to offer them was you so that they didn't hurt me. And you can just imagine her response, right? Yeah, like, oh, well, okay, I kind of understand, but please don't do it again. And then he does it again. <laughs> Hero of the faith. Kind of shows that Abraham wasn't always a man of faith. Sometimes he was a man of cowardice, right? And even though he was a man who was magnificently used by God, he was also a man who continually needed God. So are all the others. Let's carry on reading. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, Jacob, hmm, he wrestled with God. Well done. Did some good stuff. Well done. He was also a cheat with a complicated family life. He had two wives. Rachel, who was the younger one, who he really loved, and Leah, who was the older one, who he really didn't. And he had kids with both of them, but he also had kids with each of his wife's servant girls. Like Christmas was kind of complicated in their house, right? 
Secret Santa, not so much fun. Let's move on. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Ah, finally, we got to a good guy, right? We, we sang about him this morning. Judah, he's a good guy. We sing about the lion from the tribe of Judah, and we sing, yeah, he's fighting our battles. He's roaring with power. He must be a good guy. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we don't, we, we don't really have the time to uh, fully explore this story, but let's just go there for a few minutes. Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar. I'm glad the youth have gone out and the kids have gone out because this is one of the filthiest sections of the whole Bible. This is Judah, great grandson of Abraham, knows that through his line, all of the families of the world will be blessed. And this guy has three sons and his oldest son marries Tamar, but he does something stupid and something sinful, so God kills him. So son number two is told to take Tamar as his wife. That was Leverite marriage rules. That was the responsibility. And part of the responsibility was to have kids with her on behalf of his dead brother. Now, son number two doesn't really fancy doing this too much. So he takes some kind of weird birth control measures. I will leave it at that. You can go and read it yourself to see exactly what he does do to ensure that she doesn't get pregnant. And he gets killed too. So Judah, son number one dead, son number two dead, says to Tamar, hey, look, you can have son number three. He's not old enough yet, but give it a few years and you can have him. I mean, I'm sure she was thrilled by this prospect. But actually, she was in a very vulnerable place, right? Because as a a woman within that context and part of her period of history, by herself, without a husband, she was very vulnerable. So Judah's promised son number three But then Judah goes back on that promise. He breaks it. So five years later, Tamar, things have not gone the way they should have gone. She has been wronged. She hatches a plan to get what's faithfully and to get what's rightfully hers. If you read the story, you know what she does. If you haven't, you think, what the heck? That's why you should read the Old Testament. Her plan is to dress up as a prostitute and stand by the side of the road and just wait for Judah to come past. Like, no, but seriously, how bad does your reputation have to be that Tamar says, I know what will get him. I will dress up as a prostitute and stand by the side of the road. Like, how bad does your reputation have to be that if, that, that is the way I know what will get him? So she does. And she doesn't even say anything. He just sees a prostitute standing by the side of the road and he goes for it. And he doesn't even pay. He pays on credit. I mean, this guy's getting worse and worse and worse. He's roaring with power. <laughs> and then he gets her pregnant, obviously. And then later, just to top off this Judah is a good guy story, later when he finds out she's pregnant, he loses the plot and accuses her of adultery and demands for her to be killed. Long story short, 
She's a bit smarter than him and she proves that he's the father. And Judah, in this moment where he's faced with the consequence of what he's done, he confesses his sin, he confesses his brokenness, and ultimately Perez and Zerah are born. Now, I'll be honest, I have a few questions about this story. Like, not least, imagine those boys. Mom, Dad, how did you two get together? On so many levels, on so many levels, this story is a disgrace. And yet, counterintuitively, this is also a story of grace. See, we're on this side of the story, and we know that the world is going to be transformed by the lion of the tribe of Judah who comes through this line. His story is a story of grace. God uses broken people. His plans are bigger than your mistakes. Your family line does not define you. Your past does not define you. Your mistakes do not define you. God takes messed up, broken things, and he changes them from the inside out, and he uses them all for his glory. But you see, Genesis 38 isn't even the last time that we see Judah. Judah is a son of Jacob. Remember him? Jacob, Jacob and sons, that guy. Right? That guy who has one of his sons, this dude with an amazing technicolor dream coat. And Judah is one of the other sons. So Judah is one of the sons, one of the brothers who sells their younger brother Joseph, because they don't like his fancy pants dreams, sell him into slavery, into Egypt. And fast forward that story, Joseph becomes basically the prince of Egypt, and now he's in charge of the whole nation, and Judah and his brothers, because where they're from, there's famine, they end up heading out of their land, going to Egypt to get food, and they leave their youngest, next youngest brother, Benjamin, behind, because he's the dad's new favorite son now, and since Joseph's death, he cannot possibly afford to lose another one, so Benjamin stays behind, and the older brothers, they go. And they're standing in front of Joseph and they don't recognize him. But Joseph does recognize them and he says, I ain't giving you no grain whatsoever unless you go and bring your youngest brother back to me. So they head home and say, Dad, we've got some bad news. I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to take Benjamin with us. And Dad just absolutely refuses to let him go until Judah steps in. And Judah in in Genesis 43 says, I will be a pledge for Benjamin. He says, Dad, I promise I will bring him back to you. I will pledge for his safety. I will step in and I will look after him. So Dad relents and they take Benjamin Benjamin back and Joseph says, okay, thanks, but I'm going to keep him. The rest of you can go back to your land, his food, you go back to your father, you go home, be safe. I'm keeping him. He can be my slave and the rest of you can go. You can kind of see the problem for them, right? These brothers, if they lose Benjamin, their father will die. He won't cope. What happens? Who steps up? You guessed it. The man with the messy, broken past, Judah. He looks at Joseph and he says, take me instead. He literally substitutes himself for his younger brother he steps in in his place it's incredibly moving it's this powerful moment of an incredibly powerful story this cycle of mess and of junk and of sin in this family is broken in a moment with an act of substitution where one steps in for the other where have we seen this story before this is a story in miniature of a much greater story 
Judah points to the greater Judah, the perfect one. The great, 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 great grandfather does what the great, 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 great grandson will ultimately do. He steps in and he makes himself a substitute. His pledge is, yes, you should be a slave, but let me. I will give up my whole life for the sake of yours because I don't want to go back to my father without you, says Jesus. On that cross, as Jesus bled and died, he became a substitute for us. He stepped in. He pledged himself. He took the punishment that we might be free. You know, when we read these stories in the Old Testament of these characters, particularly these in the lineage of Christ, in the, in the genealogy, in the family tree of Jesus, we don't read them morally. We read them theologically. We read them as stories of grace. We read every page of the Old Testament. Do not make the mistake of separating it out. God of wrath and vengeance, God of grace and love. And it's kind of, it's just a long drawn out process till we get to Jesus and the good bit. No, every page of the Old Testament, every story is dripping with God himself, who is a God of grace. And it's all pointing forward to God himself stepping into the story. God, the eternal son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and blood. Everything points to him. And sometimes as we read the Old Testament and read these stories, it's really easy to spot. Like Christmas is really easy to spot. Direct prophecy, Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government should be on his shoulders. Oh, Jesus, yeah, that's good. Sometimes it's harder to spot. See, within this genealogy, this family tree, we have what we call types and anti-types. We had that reference earlier. Aslan isn't in the Bible story, but it's an allegory, a point. And as Roger said, it's a type. He's a type of Christ. So we have that in the Old Testament, these types who point us to Jesus and these anti-types too. We're gonna, gonna need to hurry up a bit on this list. The next few verses then are basically a repeat of Ruth. Listen again to last week's story of how, how those, those characters find their way into the story so they're ultimately pointing to Jesus. And we have Boaz here, a type of Christ. He's the kinsman redeemer who redeems the foreigner, brings in the foreigner, brings them into the family. Once you were aliens and foreigners, you were outsiders, and now you've been welcomed into the family. Jesus has made a way for you to be welcomed in the family. We also have, as well as types, we have anti-types. Those who are really not the one pointing to Jesus. But they actually still do point us towards Jesus. They're not but he is. And so by verse six, look here, we're into the kings. David, he at this point is the first king. He unites the tribes of Israel. He's a good king. We don't won't go there. He's a type of Christ. Solomon, verse six, he continues the nation's stability. Good king on the whole. Made a few mistakes. More than a few mistakes. But he continued faithfully on the whole. Let's look at one who didn't. Verse 7, Rehoboam. He was bad. Like he was privileged and spoiled and completely out of touch with the people. 1 Kings 12 tells a story. He immediately raises taxes and the people rebel. We won't read too much into our current whatever. And at this point, this point in the United Kingdom comes to an end, and this is a bit of history for us, but just so you're kind of thinking, where are some of these other kings that I read about? You have kind of, you get the northern kingdom at this point called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, and the guys we're following, well, they're from the south because, well, it all ends with the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this genealogy tracks the kings of Judah. Verse seven, Rehoboam, he was the father of Abijah. You don't know either. Another bad one. 
And then a few kings stand out. Asaph, he's the first decent one. He makes an attempt to end idolatry in the land. He was a good king spiritually, but he wasn't so good politically, and so things go wrong again. And then we have Jehoshaphat. He was one of the more decent kings. He actually did some really quite good things. Joram, bad. Uzziah, good. Jotham, good. And then after a run of decent-ish kings, we come to a really reprehensible one, Ahaz. Now, Ahaz, his reign had unceasing scandal. Like, it were bad. 2 Kings 16, you can read about it. He was the first king of Judah to sacrifice some of his children. He also sacrificed to other gods. He helped himself to the nation's finances too. He was a real bad guy. Now remember, every story points to Jesus, either a type or an anti-type. Now we don't read, we know Ahaz can't be a type because he's a bad dude, right? So he must be an anti-type, but we don't read these morally. We don't read the story of Ahaz and think, here's three principles for me to be a better parent. Number one, don't sacrifice children. Number two, don't steal. And number three, be generous. They're all good things. Like worthwhile advice, don't do those three, or do do some of them, don't do the first one. But when we see him as an anti-type in the Old Testament, we read this and we think, this king sacrifices others for his own motives. The true king sacrifices himself for his people. This king helps himself to the riches of his people. The true king, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See how it works. See how it points to Jesus. Let's move on. Verse 9, we get to Hezekiah. He's amongst the best of the kings. He does some real good stuff. People thinking he could be the king. Maybe he's the one we're waiting for. He repairs the temple. He restores worship. He fights the enemies of God. He even builds tunnels and reservoirs so that the people in the city would no longer thirst. And you think, oh, who's this remind me of? Who might this be? Could he be the king? But ultimately he's not. He gets sick. He recovers. He then makes a mistake. He invites the Babylonians in, then bang, he's dead. He's not the one. And the guy who comes next, his son, Manasseh, verse 10, well, he's definitely not the one. He's among the worst. He was raised in a godly home, but he rebelled big time. He practiced evil. He worshipped idols. He murdered. He was a mass executioner. They say blood ran throughout Jerusalem during his time. One of the prophets he killed is likely Isaiah. Not a good guy. And then we get to Amos, who's notoriously wicked. His officials assassinated him after only two years on the job. Now, (laughs) I'm no expert in political history or anything else, but you have to be pretty bad to be assassinated within two years on the job by your own officials. (laughs) And then we get to Josiah. He's among the best. 2 Kings 22 tells us, verse 2, he did what was right. He was a good guy, but his life was cut short at 39 in battle. And then we miss out on a few kings here in the story, and that's partly the way genealogy and works. And we land with Jehoconiah, whose evil is so great. 2 Kings 24 talks about it. And it says in verse 8 and 9 that his line is cursed. That's how bad he is. His entire line is cursed. That's another story for another day. But by this point in the story, things are bad now. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, he comes along and he invades the land and he strips everything out and he carts the people of God off into exile. And it's the period in biblical history called the Babylonian captivity. It's where you get Daniel in the lion's den and all of those kind of things. And here's the thing. It's all gone completely pear-shaped. It all looks like it's completely over. From a human perspective, you look at this period of history and you go, how and no, nothing can come. All the promises to Abraham, the promises to David, all these, it's all broken. They're not even in the land anymore. They're in some far off place. They've been exiled. They're in captivity. It's all completely terrible. But God's promise remains. God's promise remains. What God speaks shall come to pass. What he declares comes to pass. No matter how far removed you are or feel that you are from the story that you feel God has spoken, feel I'm in captivity, I'm away. This is, it's all gone around me. There is nothing, there is nobody. What the Lord promises always comes to pass. The line does not disappear. And then verse 13 from Abiud to Jacob. I mean, these guys... They aren't even mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. They don't even have a cool story somewhere. They don't have a, a story of disgrace or a story of anything. We've got to remember this in this moment. Lists of names in the Bible, at the very least, are never just page fillers. At bare minimum, they're always revealing something. At the most basic level, reminding us that God loves people and he knows their names. This is completely mind-blowing eight billion-ish people on the planet a few hundred of us in here I know a lot of your names I know I don't know a lot of your names God knows your name in a planet of eight billion-ish people he knows you and he loves you and he sees you right now just let that sink in we so quickly yeah God knows me he loves me God knows you and he loves you how many neighbours do you know? The ones next to you? The ones next to that? If you've been around for a long time and you're a particularly outgoing person, you might know a few of them. You might be somebody unbelievable and know everybody in your street. Most of us don't know loads. Think about your own genealogy. How far back do you know? How far back do you know? Like I had to, I had to contact my dad because I know I'm James, son of Peter, son of Gilbert Roy, son of, I don't know, I was like, Dad, this is a bit embarrassing. I don't even know beyond two generations. And he replied, oh, I don't know either. I never met my granddad. So my mum, who's done a family tree, looked it up, and he was called Gilbert something really weird. And then the one beyond him was called Samuel Pitts. That's as far as anyone knows. Now, you might be one of these people who goes back multiple, and you know. But most of us don't. Get forgotten quickly. Get lost quickly. God knows. He knows you. You might be somebody in here right now who feels, oh, I'm just an abbeyard. Like, my name's on a list in this church somewhere, but that's about it. He knows you. He loves you. He is working together all things for the good of those who love him. And when you allow the spirit of God to thaw you out, and to give yourself again and again and again to him, no matter what the circumstances and situation of your life might look like, 
He is for you. He is with you. He delights in you. Get your head up. Get your head up. He knows you and he's for you. See, this is Jesus' family tree, right? As we see these stories in the Old Testament, we see the unfolding revelation of the story of a God who is faithful to his promises to gather for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue. And he is a God of grace. A father who delights in adding into his family people from every sort of background, no matter how messed up they are. Whoever you are today, however you walked in here, This list is good news because there is a God who knows you and loves you and there is room for you in the family. If you come from a godly family, if your family tree is full of godly men and women who, who are Christians and they still are born and raised in it, you've never really deviated from the path. If that's you, if your testimony in many ways is like, what wonderful story. If that's you, don't despise it. Don't despise your story. It can be so easy to think, well, my testimony, my story is so really dull and boring. I'll just spice it up a little. And like the worst thing you can think of is you basically, even between the ages of six and nine, run a criminal enterprise, extorting kids in year one and two out of their dinner money and supplying your kids with it, your, your teachers with an endless supply of paracetamol. I mean, that's just like, you don't need to do it. Don't despise your story. Mary and Joseph are in this line. They were obviously not perfect. But they were godly, humble, righteous people. That's so wonderful. Honestly, it's all that I desire for my kids, that they know Jesus and walk in his ways. I, I want to hear, when they have their stories told, I don't want to hear stories of, I was wayward and this, that, and the other. If that's what it takes, God bless them. But that's the, if that's you, do not despise the story that you have. Don't break the chain of God's faithfulness. Carry it and pass it on to the next generation. It's wonderful. But if that's not you, and if you come from a family at the opposite end of the scale, or you don't come from a family at all, you don't even know. If yours is, your story and your background is marred with sin and wickedness and rebelliousness, and it's discouraging and it's shameful, you are in pretty good company, right? Because so was Jesus. There's room for everyone. No matter what your background, and here's the thing, whatever your background, there's one thing that every single one of us needs, the grace of God. None of us earned our way in here. It was not our performance that got us here, which means it is not our performance that keeps us here. You see, out there in the world, performance matters. Pedigree matters. Money matters. Status matters. What you do and your list of accomplishments matter. We don't do genealogies when we apply for jobs or when we apply for university. We don't say, James, son of Peter, son of Gilbert Roy, son of someone fancy, let me in. We give a list of all the accomplishments, the grades we got, the successes we've had, the jobs we've had, the ways in which we are better than everybody else. That's what, how that works. In here, that's not how that works. In here, the family of God, you leave all of that stuff out. That's not something that is going to rule us or define us. You put your trust in Jesus. You repent of your sin. You be baptized. You put your trust in him. You put your faith in Christ. You're in because you're in Christ, which means you're in his family. End of. No ifs, no buts, no anything else. You're in the family. 
And Hebrews 2 says he is not ashamed to call us his family. Just think about for a moment, whatever your background, whatever your story, whatever your mess, whatever the stuff you should have done or shouldn't have done or wish you hadn't have done or wish you had have done, he is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. I'm so glad that this is real. I'm so glad that this is true. I'm so glad that these stories are not just a pattern of kind of behavior for me to follow. I'm so unbelievably glad for the scandal of grace. My right standing with God always holds firm regardless of my performance because my standing is based solely on the work of Jesus and not of mine. And so on my worst days of sin and failure, the gospel encourages me with God's unrelenting grace towards me. And even on my best days of victory and usefulness, when I am smashing it out of the park, the gospel keeps me relating to God solely on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and not mine. I can't make God love me, and I don't need to. God loves me because of who he is and because of what Christ has done. And so now I'm a son. I'm reconciled back to God and I'm brought into a family. And you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no just me and Jesus. It is always we together with him. You are a portion of my inheritance from God and I am a portion of yours too. And that means that we play a significant part in each other's stories. You see, the greater the revelation of God, the God of grace that I have, the more I fully comprehend the the full scope and the full scale of the gospel, the more I value the church, which means you and I, the people of God, the more I value them for whom Christ died. You cannot possibly say, hey, I love Jesus, that's it, but it's just me and this is it. It just does not work like that. You are added into all the promises of God, which way, go way back to Abraham, that from his seed would be a blessing for every family, for the whole world. You are a son of, or daughter of Abraham. Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons has father, and all that stuff that is of you. Oh, it's just me and myself. I'm okay. I'll just turn up every... No, 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 and no. No, no, and no, and no again. You are part of the people of God, which means you've been added into a family, which means this side of the cross, you are added into a local family, which if it's not this one, it doesn't matter. God bless you, go and find another one, but get added in. Because I need you and you need me. We are a people, the people of God. It means we play, this grace of God means we play a significant part in each other's stories. The more I get a revelation of the grace of God, the more it impacts how I live here and now. And if you're not somebody who is in community and playing their part, no end of messages and saying, you should join a community, go to newcom.church forward slash community is ever going to convince you, look at the grace of God, your story, and how you're added in to be part of the people of God. And the more I value, as I look at the grace of God and I am astounded by the grace of God in my own life, the more I value the role that I play in the lives of my fellow fellow Christians and the more I appreciate the role that they must be allowed to play in mine too. He's broken down the barriers that we put up 
in terms of gender and race and Jew and Gentile and, and good people who are respectable and nice to hang around with and not so good people who I don't really want to associate with, they're all gone. We're family now. We need one another. And the more I spend time with people who are different to me, the more I am enriched and blessed and the more actually my life begins to represent Christ Jesus too to a watching world. We are all needy. Not any one of us has got it all sorted out. And we are all needed to play our part in the building of the people of God. However you walked in here, your story, however mucked up, messed up, broken, shameful, damaged, it might be, is not too much for the Lord who makes a way. Your story, no matter how tame and boring, well, it's just so, well, it's just one. Not for the Lord. Every life matters. Everyone precious. Everyone needed. Everyone needy. He's our father. We're his children. We get to play a part in the people of God and the story of God, of the gathering, the ingathering of the elect from every tribe and every tongue and every everything. Until that moment where, as Adrian reminded us early, we stand around the throne of God, of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and we say, praise you forevermore. Worthy are you. Glorious are you. Great are you. I'm so glad when I had the chance, I gave my life to the things that matter most for all eternity. The building of the church, the extension of the kingdom of God, the advancement of the purposes and the plans of God in the earth for his glory, for our good, and the sake of those who are not yet added in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this incredible moment of Christmas. Next week, as we come and celebrate that you put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Thank you for this incarnation, this moment that made a way. Thank you, you didn't stay as a baby though. You grew, you lived the life that we should have lived. You died the death that we should have died. You rose to new life and you've made a way that now all who put their trust in you, all who confess with their lips and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord will now be saved. For whoever puts their trust in Jesus, whoever, whatever our story, whatever our shape, whatever we've done, done, haven't done, should have done, shouldn't have done, Whoever believes in you will not die but have eternal life. Thank you that Christmas is the moment that leads to Easter and Easter is the moment where we are added into a family, a great and glorious family. In Jesus' name, amen. This Christmas, don't be passive. This Christmas is an opportunity to press into the God of grace again and an opportunity to step into the family of God again, and an opportunity to say, Lord, here I am, all of it, every last bit for your glory. Thank you for this grace that does not mean I need to get this, this, and this, and this sorted before I can step in, but I come just as I am, knowing you're the one who changes me and is changing me for your glory and my good. In Jesus' name.